Hello, um, welcome to the Sydney Ideas event on the basic income imperative. As well as covering key questions such as what basic in income is and how it works, this event aims to understand how and why our current pandemic conditions have ignited a new wave of support for basic income. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Lisa Adkins and I'm head of the School of Social and Political Sciences here at the University of Sydney, and I'm your host and moderator today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that wherever we are in Australia today, we are on Aboriginal land, sovereignty over which has never been ceded. The University of Sydney sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Our event today features two speakers who are extremely prominent in the current basic income debate. The first is Professor Guy Standing, who is our keynote speaker. Guy is an economist and professorial research associate at SOAS at the University of London. He is also a fellow of the British Academy of Social Sciences and the Royal Society of Arts, as well as being the co-founder and honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network. Guy has pre previously held professorships at SOAS, Bath and Monash universities. His many books include The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class, the Corruption of Capitalism, Basic Income, How We Can Make It Happen, and Plunder of the Commons. Most impressively, from my point of view, he has also recently collaborated with Massive Attack in a music video based on his most recent book, Battling Eight Giants, Basic Income Now. Guy's respondent today is Prof Professor Greg Marston, Greg is Deputy Executive Dean in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. Greg's research sits at the interface of social policy and sociology, and he's an expert on the Australian welfare state. His books include The Australian Welfare State, Work and the Welfare State, and Risk, Responsibility and the Australian Welfare State. Greg is also a member of the Basic Income Earth Network and he's the representative um, for Australia. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Guy. Thank you, Guy. Well, good evening, everybody. I wish I were in Sydney rather than virtually in Sydney. I'm speaking uh, from Italy. As I want to begin by saying that COVID and the pandemic slump we're experiencing uh, was an accident waiting to happen. The economic system that that's grown in the last 40 years is incredibly fragile, and I'll come back to that uh, later. And I want to begin by, by saying that basic income is often misunderstood, and therefore I think it's important to spend a minute defining it. A basic income would be a modest, regular payment to every individual 
who's a usual resident of Australia or whichever country we're talking about, it would be paid individually and equally to everybody. So each woman and each man would receive the basic income, regardless of work status, regardless of gender or marital status and whatever. It's paid unconditionally in behavioral terms. In other words, you don't have to do particular things in order to receive it or not do other things. And it's non-withdrawable. When you pay a basic income, it could be of different levels. We'll come back to that perhaps. But the essence of it is to provide a basic level of security and enable people to at least be able to survive in extremists uh, if they didn't have any other income. Of course, it's perfectly compatible with earned income of any type. And it's important to realize that it avoids means testing. Means testing always creates poverty traps, exclusion errors, stigma, and we know from countless research projects that this is the case in every part of the world. It's important to realize too that there would be supplements for those with disabilities or extra costs of living because the intention is to give everybody a material base that's, that is equal. And of course, you could claw back from the wealthy. So the objection that why should we pay wealthy people, you could claw back from by, by taxation in some way. But the important thing is to give it as a right rather than charity. And it's much more efficient and much more equitable to give the money and then tax back from the wealthy. So that's the definition. Now, the reasoning I've always given for a basic income are fundamentally ethical. It's a matter, first of all, of justice, common justice. If we allow for the private inheritance of private wealth, and we should think of the public wealth, which has been generated by generations before us, and, and, and Lisa just be referred to that, but not only Aborigines, but many generations of, of settlers as well. And we don't know who has contributed more or less. So in a sense, it's a matter of saying that we should have a dividend from the public wealth that's been generated. And after all, we allow private inheritance, which is a lot of something for nothing for a minority. So in a sense, this common justice principle is important. It's also a matter of uh, intergenerational justice and religious justice. If you're a religious, you can say, as Pope Francis has recently said in endorsing basic income, that the, the, the earth is a shared uh, phenomenon. And in addition, we are given by God unequal talents. And in a sense, a basic income would be a compensation for those who have lesser talents. And it's also a matter of enhancing freedom. Everybody says they believe in freedom, but you can't be free if you're chronically poor or insecure. And enhancing the freedom to say no, that fundamental freedom, it's an important uh, ability of a basic income, and we found that in numerous pilots around the world. It's also a matter of liberal freedom. Liberal freedom can be defined as the freedom to be moral. 
But you can't be moral if the government is telling you what to do or if you are so insecure, you just have to do what anybody tells you. So it's, it enhances liberal freedom and it also enhances Republican freedom. And I've developed that in my books that, that were mentioned at the beginning. The sense of Republican freedom is the freedom to take your own decisions without having to ask permission from others. A woman is not free if she has to ask her husband if she can do something. She is only free if she can make that decision herself. And the third ethical justification is that it would, by definition almost, give people a sense of basic security. Basic security as a human need, it is a public good, and it is a superior public good in the sense that the more people who have basic security, the greater the value to each and one of us, each and every one of us. And I think that the importance of that, which I'll come to in a moment in a, in a different context, is that if you aren't having basic security, your mental bandwidth shrinks. Your capacity to be rational shrinks. And it is unfair of us to be expecting people who are chronically insecure to be making good rational decisions. It's just not a human condition. So alongside these ethical reasons, which I've always found very strong, and I've developed them, as I said, at length, with reference to the past and, and philosophers through the ages, we now have the pandemic slump. The pandemic slump is the end of a period that began in the 1980s with neoliberalism, led by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and the Montpellerin Society and so on, which ushered in a period of liberalizing markets, opening up to the world, and liberalizing finance, first and foremost. And what we've experienced in the last 40 years is a gradual change from that into what I've called rentier capitalism, where more and more of the income is flowing to the owners of assets, financial assets, physical assets, and intellectual property, rather than production and labor. Every country has seen an incredible growth of financialization. My own country, the Great Britain, financial assets now comprise over 1,000% of GDP, national income. In most other OECD countries, it's well over 500%. And this means that basically more and more of the income is going to the financiers who are not actually producing goods and services that most of us want. And financialization has also gone with the growth of income flowing to the owners of patents and copyright and so on, again, distorting the market economy. Now, to cut a long story short, what has happened is that a new global class structure has emerged with rentier capitalism, with a plutocracy at the top of multi-billionaires. It's extraordinary that the billionaires in the United States have increased their wealth and income this year since the pandemic struck by about a third. And it's the case with the plutocracy in other parts of the world. But further down the system, you have a growing precariat. People living bits and pieces lives, insecure, without occupational narrative to give to their lives, losing 
rights and feeling that they are supplicants. This is the critical part of being in the precariat. You don't have rights. You have to rely on discretionary judgments by bureaucrats, by landlords, by parents, or by, by others in order to get by. And this growth of the precariat has been a global phenomenon. Millions and millions of people have been shrinking into the precariat. And it's not all negative because they're looking for a different lifestyle, a different way of developing, a different combination of types of work and so on. So we shouldn't say that everything in the precariat should be reversed. On the contrary, it is actually a harbinger of things to come. And in my latest book, I've taken the theme of the precariat and the theme of rentier capitalism to the argument that it has generated eight modern giants that were threatening the good society, threatening the road to a good society, blocking the road. And the image of eight giants was drawn from a famous report of 1942 by William Beveridge, who said at that time, it is a time for revolutions, not hatching. What he meant was that the, the inequalities and insecurities had grown to such an extent that there was a need for a new social compact. And his five giants at the time he talked about were uh, ignorance, disease, squalor, want, and lack of housing, basically. And he ushered in a period where the welfare states developed, and Greg is an expert on that, maybe come back to that. But when I looked at it, basically I said there are eight modern giants that have come up. And they are fundamentally different from what Beveridge was talking about. The first of the eight giants is inequality. We have grotesque levels of inequality today, and inequality of wealth is much greater than inequality of income. People concentrate on income inequality, but what has been happening is more and more of the income has gone to wealth holders, so that wealth as, as a multiple of, of uh, income has increased dramatically, and the, the more and more of the wealth is inherited wealth. So you have a situation where the wealth inequality and the income inequality are literally exploding. And unless we have a mechanism for reducing it, that will continue. And a basic income won't cure all inequality, but it would help reduce inequality. The second giant is insecurity. The incredible growth of insecurities in the last 40 years is a global pandemic. And the insecurity goes with a, an increase in uncertainty for which you cannot have an, a social insurance or a national insurance because you don't know the probabilities of being hit. And you don't know how to recover. More and more evidence is accumulating that people can be hit by a shock and not be able to recover because the capacity to do so has been eroded. And then to deal with insecurity, we need a base. We need a, an anchor of a new income distribution system. And that leads to the third giant, 
which is much greater than the last time we had a global pandemic, which was in 1918-1920 with the Spanish flu. Today, we have huge private debt. Everybody concentrates on government debt, but actually private debt is much, much greater than at any time in history. And rentier capitalism depends on people being in debt. But of course, if you have a precariat and if you have high levels of debt, you only need a small shock in order to tip people into homelessness, destitution, bankruptcy, and into the fourth giant. And the fourth giant is stress. We have and had it long before the pandemic struck, the pandemic of stress. And the stress comes from lives of insecurity, inequality, the debt, and the precarity that is the fifth giant. And people who have stress are liable to have social illnesses, those famous preconditions, and be much more susceptible to being hit by any flu or virus that comes along. We have learned that in this pandemic as if we needed to because the evidence has been out there for a long time. But stress is something that is being treated by drugs and therapies. It is actually due to the way people have to live. And therefore, a much more effective way would be to give people the basic security so that they don't have a high probability of those social illnesses leading to suicides and all of those demands on health services that would actually be a beneficial development. But no government has a strategy for dealing with insecurity and the pandemic of stress. The fifth giant is precarity, the feeling that we are losing rights. The precariat feel they don't have social rights, they don't have economic rights, they don't have cultural rights, they don't have political rights. And that sense of precarity con contributes to the, other, the strength of the other giants. The sixth uh, giant, being very brief on this, is the threat of the robots. I don't believe that automation and AI are going to make us all redundant. I think we have plenty of things to do. But what is undi undeniable is that more and more it is contributing to the inequality and the insecurity and the disruption where many people are experiencing. And the seventh giant is the one that I believe will tip millions more into supporting basic income. And that is the threat of extinction. We now know with this pandemic, which is already the sixth pandemic of this century, that the threat of extinction is not just to nature, it's also to ourselves way we live, the way we've interacted with nature, we, the way we've pursued rapid economic growth is creating conditions for the spread of viruses and other things that are going to hit us. We need to slow down. We need to realize that we need high carbon taxes and taxes on public bads. But the trouble with those taxes is that they are regressive. They, by themselves, they would increase inequality because the poor would be paying a higher percentage of their income in eco-taxes. And the only way to make them popular and acceptable 
is to be guarantee that the revenue raised from those taxes is recycled to people as part of the basic income. The idea of a basic income would also encourage us to do forms of work that are now being called essential. Care, voluntary work, community work, which currently under our old income distribution system are unremunerated, unrecognized, and undervalued. And that leads to the eighth and final giant. We have, due to fear and insecurity, a terrifying regrowth of neo-fascist populism in the world. Anybody who doesn't believe that should listen to a couple of the speeches of Donald Trump. He's playing on the fears and insecurities of the uneducated part of the precariat above all. And if we don't change our income distribution system, we will soon find more neo-fascist populists and we will all be threatened by that growth. And there is one final lesson I want to emphasize which is that we are learning through this pandemic something that is really part of the human condition since humanity began. And that is that the resilience of society and the resilience of every one of us depends and will depend on the resilience of the most insecure and vulnerable parts of our population. If the measures taken by governments leave out large numbers of people, we will have a rumbling on of second wave, third waves, and other pandemics in front of us. We need a new income distribution system that is consistent with a market society or consistent with any other political system that you might desire. That income distribution system must have an anchor of a basic income. And that is why I say that now it is an economic imperative as well as an ethical one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Guy. And I'd now like to hand over to Greg for his response. Thanks uh, very much, Lisa, and, and thanks, Guy. Um, when Guy announced the connection with a Massive Attack, as Lisa said, we were very impressed. But Guy also said that he didn't know who Massive Attack were, so he said that that didn't make him very cool. But Guy is the one person I know whose name is a grammatically correct sentence. So I think that's also pretty cool, Guy. And we can, we can use that in all sorts of ways, in terms of, you know, your upstanding talk uh, and let's be standing for Guy. So, uh, but we're all sitting here on Zoom and it's, it's not the, the best place to have a forum, but we'll persist. So I've got about five minutes to give my localised reply to Guy. And I guess there's kind of two ways I can make that response. Um, one is to say, you know, to Guy, enough of your high-minded idealism. That's not how we do things down here in Australia. We prefer rugged individualism or uh, treat them mean to keep them keen when it comes to how ordinary Australians in the daily struggle for dignity and economic security in the face of an increasingly uncertain world. So that, that would be one response. Um, alternatively, I could say thanks for giving us the inspiration to think big, and I thank him for reminding us of the sort of nation that we once were and could be again. 
because Australians have always been bold in their social reforms, particularly at the start of the last century when it came to social and political rights, and lots of what we now regard as the mark of a decent society were once considered dangerous ideas, and they were fiercely opposed. Such radical proposals as the aged care pension or universal health care, and now these are of course part of our social fabric. Given we're in the midst of the pandemic, as Guy has mentioned and everyone is very aware of, there is of course a small window of opportunity to be bold and refuse business as usual, to use the pandemic as a portal to a preferable future. And this is generally how we've done things with um, big developments in the welfare state, mostly they're exogenous external shocks of wars or depression. And so this really is an opportunity to move away from incrementalism. But in making the case as to why UBI is at least worth considering, I think it's always better to begin with why it would be desirable. Why would we want to do this? And I think that's a better starting spot than whether it's affordable. And I've been in lots of rooms with hard-headed economists who debate this in a very disinterested way. Um, no insult there intended to your profession, Guy. Um, Besides which, if you think about affordability, it's really a value statement. I mean, there's lots of things that we, we do in this country when we desire them, such as spending $200 billion on increasing Australian defence capability, which was announced in the midst of this pandemic. So it is about deciding what the goal is, and then generally we'll work out how to get there. So in terms of this desirability in Australia, there are a few arguments, as guys made very compelling arguments around the ethical statements of also which are relevant to Australia, um, the social justice argument is particularly strong when you look at the way in which the New Start rate has been but keeping people in poverty, um, not enabling them to move out. It, it keeps them in that position. There's also the temporal justice argument, which Guy has made previously, and which others like Bob Gooden in this country have made in respect to the importance of, of um, tertiary time, time allowing us to spend on other pursuits, not just mere survival or a bare existence. And time in that way is a matter of justice because that discretionary time is distributed very unevenly in our society. It's particularly single parents who are doing double shifts as well as surviving on low incomes that have very little discretionary time. There's also the libertarian argument, um, which supports small government doing away with some of the welfare bureaucracy, which in Australia is also relevant, given that we've got a highly complex social security system that, at least for people of workforce age, tends to be designed to deter rather than to assist. There is a more Marxist argument around alienation, which is again relevant here with a deteriorating labour market, which was weak going into the pandemic in terms of the paradox of overemployment and underemployment, and that a lot of the increase in jobs has been casual and part-time work. So that increases exit and voice, as Guy has said, and that argument is very relevant to the Australian labour market. It's also worth, I think, remembering here that UBI is not anti-work. Um, it's an economic flaw, not a ceiling, and all the experiments tend to show that people continue to engage in paid employment or they take up education. But the resilience argument which Guy came to, I think is possibly the one that's most relevant in the Australian context, given that we're prone to natural disasters from drought to bushfires, and now of course, the worldwide pandemic with COVID and the recession. Now I think the resilience argument is important because it enables people to be in a good position to weather the external shocks that come from economic and these disasters, the natural ones, they have a regular income they can rely on to stay on their feet. Um, and this resilience has a community and economic effect as money stays in the local economy. And if we also had a UBI, we wouldn't need to scramble every time there's a new crisis to design these imperfect schemes, um, schemes that intentionally leave out whole sections of society, be they migrants, artists, or dare I say, university workers in the case of JobKeeper. So in this year, we've 
had job keeper, we've got job seeker, job creator, and now with this highly questionable announcement about the gas lead recovery, I'm just waiting for the government spin doctors to come out and proclaim with the headline that we're now cooking with gas as they talk up the associated employment gains with the new job baker. I hope they don't actually use that. Um, I'll just finish with a few comments on feasibility because these are some of the questions that have already come through. And it's important to think about implementation, obviously, if you're a, a policy person. In terms of technical feasibility, there's some good modelling in Australia that's been done by Miranda Stewart and others around we, how we could afford a modest universal basic income with a mix of carefully calibrated income tax reforms and cashing out some of the tax benefits that primarily flow to high income earners. I think it's important remembering that a welfare state distributes not just cash, but also tax expenditures, and they don't tend to go to low-income earners. We could also begin with the stepping stone approach in terms of feasibility, focusing on populations that struggle with transitions, like young people leaving school, or older Australians that face discrimination in the labour market. This approach would emphasise the unconditional rather than the universal, and you could eventually roll out coverage to other groups once you demonstrate to people that the cultural fears around reciprocity and so on are not warranted. I think the hardest nut to crack though in terms of feasibility is political. Um, and this requires bottom-up and top-down support in the same way that the campaign to raise the rate for New Start included groups like the Business Council of Australia. And we know at the top, leaders of the major parties in this country continue to speak against basic income when asked. But we also know there are branches who are putting forward motions to debate these issues at annual national conferences. And we could take the lead uh, from Canada, which is again at the moment debating these on, uh, in, within the parties. Locally, I guess we've got the Greens who are showing their support, most recently with New South Wales MP Abigail Boyd's proposal for a universal wellbeing payment. And I encourage you to have a look at the website. In terms of bottom-up support, information education is a good place to start. And obviously the general awareness around what a UBI is has massively increased in Australia over the past five years, in part response to some of the issues Guy raised around automation. Um, but there is much more awareness than there used to be. I also think we need people who have been on trial schemes to stand up and share their story. The arts sector is important here. Next week, we would have hosted the 20th Basic Income Earth Network Congress in Brisbane. Obviously, COVID scuttled those plans. But at the Congress, we would have launched an international photographic exhibition called Humans of UBI, taking the lead from Humans of New York, um, by Canadian photographer Jessica Gollum, who herself was on a UBI trial, which was callously cut short by a Conservative government in Canada. And I think we should never underestimate the power of images and stories, obviously in a movement, any movement for social change. This exhibition will now be launched next year when the Congress moves to Scotland, another country that's trialling basic income. So I think it's high time that Australia joined the party on these demonstration projects. We have wasted tens of millions of dollars here trialling harmful and ineffective conditional welfare policies, most recently with the counterproductive cashless debit cards. So maybe it's time to trial some schemes that are proving to be effective in rich and poor countries alike. We certainly have to give up on the enduring myth that poverty is a problem of bad character or poor personal choices. Poverty is a problem of insufficient cash. As Guy said, people have a right to economic security, security, dignity, and real freedom, regardless of their employment status, gender, age, abilities, or race. Thank you. Thanks so much, um, Greg. There are heaps of questions coming. And one is actually about Australia, um, which leads directly on from um, Greg's interventions there. Uh, so maybe I'll start with that question. What do you think um, the impact of COVID-19 would have been on Australian society 
um, if we had a guaranteed basic income in place when the pandemic began? Yeah, I think that we would have um, not had the, the winners and the losers as we did. I mean, obviously, the coronavirus supplement, you know, effectively doubled the new start rate. And that's been shown to be in, in really advantageous for households to buy things that they weren't able to afford, not to have to make a choice between um, food on the table and, and medicines or being able to buy a warm clothes. So it says two things to us, that we obviously need the rate that's generous enough to make a difference. Um, but we also have designed these schemes, unfortunately, in ways that didn't cover everyone that needed that. So I think had we had in place, we have had those that have, that have been on the supplement and those that haven't. Had there been a basic income in place, then it would have been possible for the government to have raised the, the amount being paid during this emergency and therefore reduced the extent of impoverishment that was bound to take place, pandemic hitting the whole of society. And it would have been a way of reducing the growth of inequality. We're going to see that uh, when the evidence is all collected, that during the pandemic, there will have been huge increases in income inequality. And more and more people in the lower end of the income spectrum will be susceptible not only to more illnesses and therefore more susceptibility to be hit by the pandemic, but to chronic debt and all the deaths of despair will come from that. So a basic income would have given that sense of resilience to Australia or to Britain or wherever. And I think that even the lessons in the United States, where heaven knows they've made a mess, but the one good thing that they've done was under the CARES Act, they provided at an early stage a, a sort of basic income, not ideal, but it was one that has, has lowered the increase in poverty and inequality in the US. The evidence is already accumulated. So I think to have had a basic income would have increased resilience enormously. Thanks, um, Guy and Greg. So moving on to another um, very popular question. Would um, basic income be preferable to a government strategy pursuing full employment? And if so, why? This is one of Guy's favourite topics. Yeah, it certainly is. And I've written an extensive appendix in my new book uh, saying why basic income is preferable to a jobs guarantee or, or things like that. One thing we've got to escape from is the jobs fetish. Every uh, neoliberal government, whenever there's a problem, jobs, 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 becomes the, the fetish. We've got to realize that most people in the precariat have lousy jobs, insecure jobs, jobs that don't provide an adequate income, either because of low wage rates or fluctuating incomes without access to non-wage benefits. And, you know, guaranteeing full employment won't necessarily alter the income distribution system. You can guarantee full employment if you drive down wages and if you have onerous working conditions. Do we want that? I hope not. I think a basic income would enable people to spend more of their time doing types of work and education and developing themselves that they wish to do. And I believe that that is a better way forward. 
I don't believe creating more and more bullshit jobs, as the late David Graeber called them, is an answer to a sensible question. I believe in work. And one of the things that is so important to realize, and backing up something that Greg said, which I should have said, which is that the pilots that have been done around the world, in which I've been involved, you're, you're listening to someone who has a crazy habit of being involved in doing pilots in different countries, all of them, and I'll repeat that, all of them have shown either an increase in work or no reduction in work. Different methodologies, different countries, different designs have shown, in fact, that work actually is increased and it's more productive and it's more collaborative, the work that takes place. It is a middle-class myth and prejudice that if you gave people a basic income, they would become lazy and sit back and take to drink and drugs. It's just not the case. It actually incentivizes people. The worst thing about Australian means-tested social assistance is that it is an active disincentive to taking low-wage jobs because you lose benefits just when you need them to help you acclimatize to a different type of life. So to me, a basic income removes the poverty trap. It increases the incentive and gives people more confidence to take risks. End of subject. Thanks so much. Um, so both of you um, obviously have mentioned neoliberalism in your, in your talks, in your interventions, and there's a really interesting question from Kelly, who says um, that they worry about neoliberal governments using BI as an excuse to further privatise services such as health and education, which could drive greater inequality. What are your thoughts on this? And I imagine that both of you would have interesting things to say about that. Yeah, I'll just go quickly on that. I mean, I think that that's the difference really between a kind of a right and a left libertarian argument in favour of EBI. And, you know, the left libertarian argument would be to say that we want to increase people's freedoms and freedom from unwarranted state interference, but that they don't want to see the dismantling of the welfare state, whereas a right libertarian would say, and this would be in line with the neoliberal argument, is that you cash out all of those social welfare services and, and give it to people in the form of a basic income so that they can spend it on the market. And I think that would be a terrible idea in terms of the way we know that markets discriminate. There would be no different with health and, and, and education services. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many ways of answering this, this particular complaint. First is the counterfactual which is under neoliberal governments, they have been privatizing services and it hasn't been because of the basic income, okay? The, the fact is, without a basic income, people don't stand up and fight for other things in, in society. They feel vulnerable, they feel weak, and they don't bargain. The second way of looking at it is to say, look, you can't win a game of golf with only one club, or you can't back for a century with only one shot. Basically, a basic income is not a panacea. It's a component of a new progressive strategy mm. in the reality of the 21st century. And, and that, I think, means that, yes, we have to fight for good public services. We have to fight for that. We have to fight to preserve our national health service or whatever it might be. But that is dis different from fighting to have basic security for everybody. 
And, and I think these are quite different things. And, and we should realize that, that privatization has been going on and on and on, partly because people are vulnerable and don't fight to preserve the things that we need. Thanks, Guy. And that leads really nicely, actually, to um, one of the further questions, um, which is, what other changes are needed alongside basic income to wrestle with the other eight giants that you've discussed? Yeah, I, I'd like to answer that by saying, I've always argued that there are two meta securities, two primary uh, human needs. One is access to resources in order to have the assurance of subsistence. And the other is voice. We all need individual and collective voice to strengthen our bargaining positions. Otherwise, we're all vulnerable. If you if take away yeah, the ability to bargain and you're vulnerable. And what we did in our Indian pilots is we divided communities into those where they had an organization representing people to bargain with people in positions of power and one set of areas where they didn't have that extra voice involvement. And in certain respects, the positive effects of basic income were strong in those areas where they had an organization that could represent and they were stronger relative to the past when those organizations were operating without a basic income and relative to other areas where there was a basic income without voice. You saw improvements in, in schooling, you saw improvements in women's status, you saw improvements in economic output and the multiplier effects in the community, the income multiplier effects. And, and I think that, that it's essential now that we have a new set of organizations that are representing people as people, not just as laborers, not just as workers. The unions have got to transform themselves, but we need some sort of unions in order for us to have a good society. Um, Sean um, in the audience has asked um, Guy for you to say a little bit more about your, the new politics of time. Could you say a bit about the relationship between how BI might reconfigure their leisure? I haven't planted this question, but I, I wish I had because it's, it's one of my current uh, thrilling, something thrilling me about this subject. I've always argued that we need to reconceptualize what we mean by work. I think one of the tragedies of the past 100 years or so is that all work that is not labor has disappeared from political rhetoric, from statistics, from textbooks and so on. So the work that women does uh, do more than any other care work just doesn't get counted as work, which is sexist and ridiculous and contributes to continuing inequalities, inequities, gender-based and otherwise. We need to realize that all forms of work should be accepted with equal status and equal protection and so on. But the, the issue of leisure is equally important. And I think that the, the giant of neo-fascist populism is making it even more important. 
It used to be in the ancient Greek times that you made a distinction between play and leisure as skole or shole, which was participating in the life of the polis, in the life of society. And the original basic income was given um, for participating in political life. You got the basic income as a sort of compensation uh, way back in 450 BC. So it, it has a, a deep root. And I, I think that we have had a thinning of democracy because we have a thinning of leisure. More and more people are induced to have to do a lot more labor, a lot more work for labor, a lot of work for the state. If you're in the precariat, you have to spend a lot of time filling forms, queuing, etc., etc. And the squeeze has been on real leisure. Leisure of education, leisure of reflection and contemplation and participating as a citizen. As a consequence, we have, dare I say it, a diseducated, educated population. They have formal education, but many, many people don't have a rounded education that they know their culture, their history, their philosophy, their music, and they narrowly learn job pursuit, schooling, human capital, where we need to find mechanisms to enable people to have real leisure. I'm proposing, and the only condition I would uh, tolerate as a condition for basic income is that when you start receiving it, you sign a statement committing to participating in some sort of political life of your community. The moral condition, not a legal binding one. So if they don't do it, they still would get their basic income. You want to encourage people to participate, to vote. I know the Australian situation is different from many other countries, but in many, many countries we're getting a minority of the electorate voting and a minority of that getting the government. British government got a landslide election victory in December, but actually had only 29% of the electorate voting for it because people are disengaged and we need to find mechanisms and basic income can help in this because it can enable people to say, I'm actually going to spend more time doing care or voluntary work or community work or commoning and more time in reflecting, learning, participating, and going to village meetings or town meetings or whatever it means. So for me, this is a part of regaining leisure. Sorry to give a long answer, but for me, it's, it's a very important issue about the politics of time. The only thing I would emphasise is that the, the new politics of time is really an old and important debate, as, as Guy said. But in, every time we've had a technological revolution, um, you know, we've talked about the increased capacity of leisure. We did this with John Maynard Keynes. We also did it in a really important essay by Burton Trin Russell in Praise of Idleness, you know, in this importance of making sure that we've got time for all of these act activities. And I think the only thing I'd say about the pandemic is that it did show us that when we have less scheduled lives, that in some ways that releases us to think differently about what we do with our time. And again, that's some ways in which I think we ought to use yeah. that pandemic as an opportunity to rethink and, you know, there's lots of movements around this, of course, in slow food, the slow academy, um, all of that ways in which we could slow down what we do. Thanks both for those really interesting um, 
responses to that question. And thanks, I think it was Sean for the great, um, for posing the question in the first place. There are a couple of technical questions um, around basic income. And, and I wonder if you, how you would respond to this. So Alison, for example, has asked how um, would the level of basic income be set within different kind of welfare state settings. Um, and I suspect you've both had experience of thinking that through um, in practical terms. So what would your response be to that? I mean, I might just go quickly, I suppose, in terms of the Australian case. And I guess the, the, the high mark in terms of the uh, most expensive would be to socialise the rate at which the age pension is paid. Um, about $22,000 to $24,000 per adult, but that would double your social security bill. Um, so, you know, that's that's not a modest scheme, but it's one that at least gets people closer and, and out of poverty, unlike New Start, which is much yeah. less. I want to answer this in a different way. One is to say that during a pandemic or an, a slump that we're experiencing, we need an emergency basic income. If you like, quantitative easing for people. Mm, Instead yeah. of putting billions of dollars into the financial markets and the stock exchanges propping up finance, we need to be spending quite a high level of basic income. But that basic income might be higher than what we would, we would expect to have in a more normal time. Because I think you need to build up the financial capacity to pay. What I've proposed in, in my book, Plunder of the Commons, is that every country should build up a commons capital fund uh, from which you pay out the dividends uh, through investing and build it up through levies like land value tax, eco taxes, and various other levies uh, and build that capacity, just as the Norwegians have done or Alaska Permanent Fund has done and so there are good examples. But to come back to your question, as Lisa, the last part of your question, what we found is that even a low basic income, where we paid in India or in Africa, we were paying something like 40% of subsistence. And that people said, well, surely that won't make a lot of difference. But if you're getting that amount and you're getting it individually when individuals or families have shocks what tends to happen is that other individuals and families help out and that increases the resilience in society in the community and it actually has a multiplier effect that raises incomes and production above what is actually being spent I used to go to the villages where we were paying the basic income and I used to say, why? We're only paying this modest amount and yet health is improving, nutrition is improving, child school attendance is improving, economic output is improving, the development of the community, sanitation, they're all improving. This is bigger than the, than the amount we're paying. But the, the, the lesson I learned and I've developed it in the book is the emancipatory value is greater than the money value. Mm -hmm. And I think is an important part yeah. of realizing that we're thinking of being on a road 
to giving mm -hmm. basic income at a higher level. We want to build that capacity, but it's being on the road that's important. Yeah. That makes complete sense to me, Guy. Thank you. And maybe a, a follow-up question for, um, for Greg. Um, so one of our audience members has asked, have there been any trials or experiments in Australia? And if not, are there any plans for um, any such experiments? Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. There's a small-scale experiment that the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence ran uh, in the 19. 70s and of course we've had variations of experiments in particular not called basic income but in terms of um, some of the uh, schemes in indigenous communities and in remote communities that um, John Altman's looked at and sort of made some equivalent arguments around basic income that are worth looking at in that research and there's also been some proposals with local governments um, but at this stage none of those have actually got uh, the financial support and, and haven't been implemented so if anyone out there wants to put their hand up um, need to talk to us. Um, I'd like to, I would like to use that question to pay tribute to the late friend of Greg and myself, John Tomlinson, who long argued that there should be pilots in, in indigenous Aborigine uh, communities. And I think it would be a wonderful way of responding both to the pandemic and to the legacy of inequalities that we all know about in Australia if there was a pilot launched in one of those communities to see how it would work. Mobilizing private and public funds for that should not be beyond expectations at this period. It really shouldn't. Thanks. Thanks for that, Guy. So we've got two minutes left. Um, and I wonder if we could wrap up our conversation. Uh, by asking both Guy and Greg to highlight what they see as a key point from our conversation that either they're taking away from it or they'd like um, our audience to take away from our conversation. Right, I better go first because I'm always the short in my reply. So um, I think I'd say one, oh, of the, yeah. one of the things I'd say is that uh, as Guy's reminded us, you know, the, the, the job fetish, um, and I think that would be a real cultural barrier in Australia because we... We do have a kind of organising principle of work, um, worth around paid work, and it's you know it's um, I think we would need to talk about that whether that's the right principle for the 21st century. I much prefer the terms like the worthwhile ethic to encompass all forms of work um, and care of the environment and care of people. I think that's a much better ethic for the 21st century, and I'd encourage everyone to to think about that more critically because it avoids all of those binaries between unemployed and employed as well, and it looks at every contribution that makes the world go round and makes us good social citizens. Thanks, Greg. How about you, Guy? Well, first point I want to make is that it is eminently affordable. And uh, we haven't discussed that extensively. It's affordable in developing countries. It's affordable in rich countries like Australia. Governments give out huge subsidies, billions of dollars that go to middle-income and upper-income groups. We could easily afford it. And, and that argument the back of the envelope figures that people toss out are just not relevant. The second thing I think is that I know, because every single day, I, since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been inundated with emails and media requests and so on. This is a wonderful period in one respect, which is there is a flourishing of experiments around the world. Yep. In Korea, 
in Canada, in, across the United States, with local authorities introducing different schemes in places like Stockton, in Scotland, in Finland, in Ireland. It, it, you're seeing, and in Italy, you're seeing many experiments that are moving the dial forward. And I think learning the lessons of that is fantastic and urging Australia to join that because Australia could be a pioneer. I really believe it. Thanks so much, Guy. And I suspect our audience members would agree with that. So that brings us to the close of this event. And I'd like to thank Guy and Greg um, for for providing us with such thrilling um, contributions um, today to the Sydney Ideas environment. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.